Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you? to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. O Lord, have have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Please keep your Bibles handy. Uh, We're going to work through this story in detail. I know it's probably familiar to many of you, uh, yet as we go through it, I'm sure there are things you will not notice and you'll need your Bible to be able to see them. There's also sermon outlines. If you didn't get one at the door... Uh, There should still be some there and you can go and grab one now. There we are. Uh, About 60 years ago there was a bright young politician in Australia. Uh, He had joined, uh, gotten into politics at quite a young age and very early on he gained a lot of influence. Uh, He was an upper-comer in the Liberal Party. Quite early in his career he became Minister for Immigration and it was the post-war period and he was responsible for vastly expanding immigration, uh, for showing quite compassionate policies for the good of our country. 
He was instrumental in beginning the downfall of the white Australia policy uh, and in doing so sowed the seeds for the multiculturalism that we now value and enjoy so much. Later in his career he became treasurer. As such he oversaw the creation of the Reserve Bank and also the introduction of decimal currency. Not long after that he was elected leader of the Liberal Party uh, by an overwhelming majority. Within a short period of time he was later elected as Prime Minister after winning a landslide victory. As Prime Minister he promoted Indigenous affairs, he built uh, strong ties with uh, Asian countries, he strengthened our tie with the US. Overall he had a wonderful career, amazing influence, uh, an incredible list of achievements worth remembering. But what's he remembered for? He's remembered for going for a swim at the beach and disappearing. Talking, of course, of Harold Holt, our infamous Prime Minister. Uh, ironically, we remember him by naming a swimming pool after him. No, no joke, there is a swimming pool in Victoria, the Harold Holt Swimming Centre, to remember our Prime Minister who disappeared whilst swimming. God, it's fantastic. <laughs> See, despite all the good that he did, despite the, the, the achievements of really quite an illustrious career, all that is remembered of Harold Holt is that he is the Prime Minister we lost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite sad, isn't it? He, he worked so hard all his life, did so many good things, and all we remember is he disappeared one evening going for a swim. Poor old Jonah kind of suffers from the same problem because all we think about when we think Jonah is what the kids said, the big fish. Uh, I admit, as a fisherman, that gets me excited. But that's all we remember about this story. And it's such a shame because this is an amazingly rich and wonderful story. Uh, the next three chapters, let alone the first, teach us so much. They're so uh, incredibly rich. We, we find in them uh, a clear and confronting mirror for ourselves, showing things in us that we really would rather not see. But at the same time, we also see this beautiful picture of God who is so much more merciful than we'd ever dared imagine. This is a wonderful book. It is a beautiful story uh, and a searching story and it is so much more than about a fish. And I hope you'll come to agree as we study it over the next month together. As books of prophecy go, this one does quite start really in the normal way. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Very standard opening to a book of prophecy. God's word comes to his prophet Jonah. Now we don't know heaps about Jonah. Jonah actually gives us very little information about himself. Uh, we know though that he was a prophet who'd previously met with some success. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25, uh, we see that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II an evil king during a dark time in Israel's history. But Jonah prophesied then. He prophesied that Israel's borders uh, would be expanded in certain areas and they were. Exactly what he said happened. So Jonah is a trustworthy prophet. He is a true prophet because what he says happens. And now God calls on Jonah again and he says this to him, verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
There's two commands there at the start of verse 2. Get up and go. That get up's not in the NIV, but it's there. Get up and go. What happens? Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah does what God says. He gets up and he goes the other way. Not to Nineveh. To Tarshish. Nineveh's to the east, quite a, quite a journey. Uh, Tarshish is west. As far as you can go. Like This is, for the Israelites, that's the edge of the world. That's as far as the world exists. Uh, it's, it's like we would say going to Timbuktu. You, know, you can't go any further. That's it. The world ends there. Why? Why is God's faithful, previously successful prophet now running from God's call to him? What's going on here? Now it's true. Nineveh is Israel's enemy. Nineveh was the capital, or at least a major city, in the nation of Assyria, one of Israel's chief threats. It's true. Nineveh was a dangerous place. Uh, a, a violent city, a dangerous place to be, especially if you were a prophet of God. But we're not actually told here why Jonah ran. Uh, it doesn't say at this point. It does later in the book. He explains his reasonings. But we do get a hint here. We get a hint in the way God calls him. See, God proclaiming judgment against nations is not an unusual thing. Uh, look through the prophets we have in the Bible, particularly the smaller prophets, And we'll see time and time again God declaring judgement on certain nations and groups of people. Uh, Have a look at Nahum, for example, after the service. He prophesied exclusively against Nineveh. So this this is not unusual. But what is unusual is that God sent Jonah there. None of the other prophets had to go. When they prophesied against those places, they did so from Israel. Or they did so from Judah. They, they declared their prophecy, but probably the places they prophesied against never would have heard of them. They, they wouldn't have received that message because it wasn't to them even though it was about them. But that's the difference here. Jonah is being sent to Nineveh. He's going there to declare to them God's word. They're going to hear those words. What that means is there's a potential that they'd respond they might hear these words and be cut to the core by them and repent and receive mercy. And that is the last thing Jonah wants. He does not want Nineveh to repent. They are Israel's enemy. The last thing he wants is for them to receive mercy. He wants them wiped out. And so he runs away. He doesn't want there to be any chance that they might respond It can be quite tempting for us to look down on Jonah at this point. Uh, to say, you know, how can he do that? Okay, sure, they are, they're, they're Israel's enemy. But how could Jonah possibly think of, let alone act, to withhold God's mercy from them? How could he run from doing them such good? I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a low act, isn't it? And yet we shouldn't be too quick to judge, should we? Because we are also sent. Uh, Jesus' last command to his people was, like Jonah, go. 
Okay, not to Nineveh particularly, but go to the world. Go to your neighbours. Go to the people around you. And yet what do we do? Well, we, we don't go, do we? We don't tell them about Jesus. We, we find ourselves going the other way. We do exactly what Jonah did and withhold the good news of God's mercy. Are we really any better than Jonah? We're going to explore that more in coming weeks. Jonah is running from God. He is running from declaring God's will to the people of Nineveh. Three times the phrase is there, going from God. It's literally going from God's presence. Jonah is trying to get away from God, get out of his sight, out of his mind. He's he's thinking, if I get away, God might actually just send someone else. I might be off the hook. God flees. Uh, Jonah flees, sorry, but God's there. Come with me to verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The storm hits and this crisis falls upon the ship. Uh, The sailors are panicking. The captain uh, is worried for the safety of his vessel. Jonah's sleeping. (laughs) Not really a great moment for Jonah. They find out uh, who's responsible by casting lots They're not sure if it's his fault or he's going to tell them, but he confirms it's his fault. All of this has happened because he is running away from God. See, the irony is all of Jonah's fleeing and sleeping and trying to get away has not worked. God is there. God's the one who authors this storm to punish Jonah, to threaten and prevent his escape. God is there in the words of the captain who wakes Jonah up. The captain literally says to him, get up and go. Exactly the same words that God had said to Jonah. It must have been this amazing sense of deja vu. God is there, ironically, even for the sailors. These pagan sailors don't know him and yet are acknowledging him and fearing him. Where Jonah, God's prophet, is not. See, God is there. And Jonah cannot escape him. Uh, In the early 60s, the Great Train Robbery took place in England. Uh, Thieves robbed a train, a mail train, and stole £2.6 million in cash. Uh, Works out to roughly £49 million today. So, say, $100 million, give or take. Quite an achievement. Uh, But one of them were Ronnie Biggs, 
was caught no long, uh, not long after the robbery. He served a year in jail, uh, but then climbed a wall and escaped. And he fled the country and lived quite an infamous life. Uh, Ronnie Biggs went to France. He had extensive plastic surgery to change his appearance. He then uh, moved to Australia and he lived in Sydney and later in Melbourne. And he worked to kind of build this new life for himself out of what remained of the money he'd stolen. But his crime followed him. Investigators uh, found where he was. They were breathing down his neck, about to arrest him. When again he escaped, uh, and this time went to South America and started to establish a new life for himself, uh, this time in Brazil. It worked to some degree, uh, but not entirely. He couldn't be extradited. Uh, There were no laws in place for that. But his freedom in that country was severely limited. And all the while he lived there, he was hounded uh, by the media, you know, asking him why he wouldn't just own up to his crimes. Uh, he was even hounded by bounty hunters. He was kidnapped at one point in order to bring him back, but that kidnapping failed and he stayed. His whole life, what he had done, his crimes, uh, followed him. Until finally, at the age of 72, with 28 years remaining on his sentence, he gave himself up uh, and returned to England and was put in jail. So he couldn't ever run away. It didn't matter which corner of the globe he went to, his crimes followed him the whole time. Because there are some things you cannot run from. There are some things you cannot get away from. And God's people are unable to get away from God. We cannot escape his presence. We can't run from him. We can't ever find ourselves outside of him or away from him. He is there. He is always there and always with us. Now we we hear that and we tend to think of it as a negative thing. We think, well, God's like big brother uh, and that's that's kind of the worst thing ever. He's he's there looking over our shoulder and and judging us and, and, and assessing everything that we do. But the Bible actually takes this the complete opposite direction. It says God's presence actually is the great comfort for us. This is a great source of assurance and hope. Uh, Psalm 139. Jonah should have known this one as a prophet. He should have known this psalm off by heart. But this is what it says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, and here's the comforting part, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. See, God is always present with his people. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, is a promise he makes. We are never alone, we are never abandoned, We never find ourselves outside of or apart from God and that is our confidence, that is our hope. So we're not like the the new intern working uh, his month's probation at his dream job. Now he's always worried, isn't he? He wants to impress the boss and does everything he possibly can. He wants to please every single worker. He wants to do anything he can so that he won't lose that job that he wants so desperately. And so always he's worried, always he's uncertain and he gets no joy out of it. That's not us. 
we are safe with God. He is always with us. Not because we're constantly doing the right thing, not because we're constantly giving to him enough to keep him with us, but because that is who he is. God's presence is not conditional, it's not contingent on his people's good behaviour. He is always with us. He is always caring for us. Romans 8 tells us that nothing, not a thing in all existence, is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot run out of that love. We, we, we won't wake up one day and find ourselves outside of it. If it is yours, if you have received it from Christ, you always have it. And nothing will ever change that. You can't even run out of it. That's what Jonah found. There's no sense running like Jonah. Uh, even when the, the task feels too hard, even when our guilt feels too great, we cannot run out of this love. Which means we should run to it. Because God is there. And in him we find love unimaginable. I know many of you worry of children or partners or friends who have wandered from God, who from a human point of view have completely walked away and left it all behind. They've walked from church, from their faith, from their knowledge of God, all these things that they had and have now either run or drifted away. Well, know this, they are still not out of his sight. They are much less out of his power and of his presence. They are still in his reach, they are not beyond him. And even though they may look so opposed, they are not out of his presence. He is still in control. I mean, Jonah's parents must have worried for him if they were still alive. <laughs> look what he's done. And yet look at God surrounding him and calling him back. So pray for those who've wandered, speak the gospel and know that they are well within God's action and God's power. And be confident in his love. Know that it's present with you. Know that it's present and powerful in all of his people. It should have been enough for Jonah. Sure, the task was hard, but God was with him. Let it be enough for you, because God is with you also. He is here and he is for his people. But God had a bit more to teach Jonah in the midst of this storm. He wanted to show him just how great his mercy is. It's a strange way to learn that lesson, a strange place to learn that lesson. Uh, We've seen Jonah confessing who he is, we've seen this storm intensifying and the sailors are just terrified. It's beyond them now. They want answers, they they want solutions, they they want to, to find a way out of this. Come with me to verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. 
Uh, Jonah's admitted fault. The storm is there because he's running away. It's God uh, working on him. And so he offers to solve it. Uh, I'll make the storm go away, just chuck me overboard. (laughs) It's quite weird, really. Uh, If Jonah really believed that, why didn't he just jump overboard? I mean, there's, there's a reluctance there, isn't there? What's more, all of a sudden, this seems at odds with what Jonah was actually doing. All of a sudden, Jonah is becoming self-sacrificial for these pagan strangers, something that he'd previously refused to do for Nineveh. We, we can't look into his motivations. Maybe he just thinks that death is better than the mission God sent him. Well, whatever he thinks, the sailors don't want a bar of it. Look at verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not because the sea grew even wilder than before. See, Jonah wouldn't risk his life to save Nineveh, but these sailors are risking their lives to save Jonah. <laughs> you know, they're completely outdoing God's prophet here. It's, it's remarkable. But all to no avail. And they have to give in. Verse 14. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Jonah runs from God, does everything he can to escape God. And the sailors, on the other hand, get closer and closer to God. Uh, It's a remarkable picture. Jonah goes further and further away, or tries to at least, and these pagan sailors come closer and closer to God. Uh, At the end of the passage we see... uh, Jonah in a fish, and the sailors sacrificing and making vows to God. I mean, it's remarkable. Did they convert? Well, it's not sure, but they certainly praised God and gave him glory. And God shows mercy. For the sailors, the storm disappears. God is merciful to them. For Jonah, the disobedient prophet, God provides an obedient fish who swallows him. And saves him. Jonah's rescued in God's mercy in order that he be brought back to God. See, in both cases, we see how God's mercy works and we see why it works, to what end. God's mercy works to bring people to himself, whatever it takes, whether it's his word, whether it's a storm, whether it's a fish. God's mercy acts to bring his people closer to himself. It's not always nice mercy, but it is necessary. In a way, it's a bit like giving medicine to a baby. Uh, When Jethro is sick or in pain for whatever reason, you want to help in that situation. You know, it, it sucks to see your kid in pain and so you have mercy on them as a parent, uh, which means in our case, Panadol or Nurofen. And despite having kid-friendly flavours, kids never like that stuff. Our kids haven't anyway. They hate it. Uh, And as soon as he sees that that doser, that injector coming, he clamps his mouth. 
He shakes his head. He starts writhing, thrashing around. He does his best to knock it out of our hands. Uh, it's distressing. It's difficult. To, to, to dose him, we have to pin all his limbs down, hold his jaw wide open whilst he howls at us. That is the only way to get it in his mouth. It's not pleasant. He gets very, very angry. But, as unpleasant as it is, it's merciful, isn't it? Because through that awful process, he gets the relief he needs and he wants. God's mercy is not always soft or fluffy or nice. We, we kind of think as, as mercy is one of those, those really nice words. But God's mercy can be severe. It, it can be hard. Because at the end of the day, the most merciful thing that God can do for us is draw us back to himself. And thankfully, thankfully he is willing to do that the hard way. Now that's what Jonah found, isn't it? It took a storm, it took a fish to bring Jonah back to himself. But God was merciful. And as we see next week, he used that to restore Jonah. Thankfully God is willing to do the hard thing to get us back to himself, to show mercy. You see, the most amazing thing is when the time came that God revealed his greatest act of mercy, his greatest act of restoring people to himself, it wasn't painful for them because it was painful for him. Took a cross, took the death of his beloved son and there God, who is rich in mercy, brought his people back to himself. He saved them. So Jesus is the better Jonah. Through him, God showed mercy to his people. He tried to through Jonah. Jonah ran as hard as he could. But he did through Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave himself, not, not begrudgingly, but willingly. Not because he'd found himself in a situation, gotten there by his mistakes, but out of his perfect obedience to God. And he took all that wrath, all that anger, all that punishment upon himself. Not to save himself, but to save us. And the result is that we, who were once alienated from God by our rebellion and our disobedience, we who are even called enemies of God, we were that far away, have been brought near and are even called his children. And that is why his presence with us is such a good thing because it is the presence of a father, of the perfect father, who is good, who is loving, who is generous. The father who never leaves us, not because he's checking up on us, not because he's you know, the, the, the ultimate helicopter parent, but the father who's with us because he loves us, because he delights in us and because he wants good for us. Because he prizes time with us. He prizes that relationship because we are his beloved children and he knows that his presence with us is the very best thing for us. Because we are made for him and only in him, only near him do we find the fullness of joy and peace and assurance that we need. 
praise God that mercifully he draws us closer to himself. Even when we're rebellious, even when we're wayward. Sometimes he does it through nice means, through a book or a conversation or a prayer or a Bible study. Sometimes he does it through not nice means, uncomfortable means even, sickness or job loss or relationship breakdown. Now, don't get me wrong here, that doesn't mean if you're experiencing those things you are necessarily further from him than anyone else. It simply means that he's using those means to bring him closer to you. Hebrews 12 says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, that is God's goal for us, that we would be nearer to him and closer to him, would grow more like him in everything. If life for you at the moment uh, is going well, be glad. Be thankful. But it might be then that the idea of future hardship, the the future hardship kind of mercy, is a daunting thing. You think, well, I I would rather God didn't take me that way actually. I I don't really want to travel that path. But know that if he does, and he probably will, he will go with you. He will be there with you. And as hard as it might be, it will be good for you because you will be closer to him. But if that is you at the moment, if hardship is your reality now, then even then be glad. Even then rejoice, as Paul says. Because what God is doing in that time is using it to bring you closer to himself. He's actually showing you mercy. He's drawing himself to you, perhaps even in special and dramatic ways. So seek him in it and you will find him because he is a God who walks the darkest of valleys with you. Trust that he wants you closer to himself and that there is nothing better for you in this world than that. He's already taken the hardest step to make that possible. He has endured the cross for you to save. Trust if he is willing to do that, that what he's doing now or what he's doing when the time comes will also be for your good. Even though this book is called Jonah, Jonah's not the hero of this story. And that's what the kids talk said. Uh, If anything, Jonah is the anti-hero in this story. Uh, The message of Jonah, in case you've missed it, is don't be Jonah. (laughs) Uh, That would be a mistake. It's quite likely Jonah actually wrote his own story. He didn't make himself look good. Uh, He didn't show himself to be far better than he was. But he shows himself with all his faults. Why? So that we would see the real hero even more clearly so that we would see God. God who is present, God who is merciful, God who loves his people, who can never run from him or never be separated from him. They are his, he has given his son to make it so and he keeps them and he draws them to himself in his beautiful and amazing mercy. So let's come to him in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your beautiful, powerful, all-present mercy to your people. Father, we know that the very best thing for us is to be near you and we thank you that you work in us to that end. In your mercy, blessing us and drawing us nearer to yourself, whatever it takes. Father, help us not to fear intimacy with you. Help us not to fear being seen by you and known by you, nor be scared at the cost it might have on us, but instead to gladly receive you and rejoice in you and in being close to you. Father, teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust your work in our lives, whatever it may be, and to find in you great confidence and great assurance so that we would live joyfully and boldly and gladly in you always. In Jesus, our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.